This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. Stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. His head moved. His mouth glided up her neck with featherlight brushes to that hollow beneath her ear. Then something hot and wet. His tongue. Adeline's heart surged into a dizzying pace and her lungs, only just recovered, sped up in concert. She opened her mouth to say something, but all that came out was a breathy stutter. All sounds and no pattern. Thoughtless sounds. Khalil took the sound as a request, and soon his mouth was on hers, hot and vibrant, firm and kneading, strong despite that terrible wound he carried. He wanted her, and it felt right. It felt fierce and free and absolutely necessary if she wanted to maintain her sanity. She'd heard that hormones could make people stupid, and she didn't care. She was going to do something stupid, and it felt brilliant. A steamy extract from Falling for Her Reluctant Shake by Amelie Berlin. As you might have guessed, it's a Mills and Boone romance novel. The style is pretty easy to recognise and to imitate or parody, because it works to a very strict formula. From its front cover and the precise length of the novel to its characterization and plot and ending, Mills and Boone romance novels are very, very predictable. Boringly or reassuringly so, depending on your point of view. But of course, this is just one type of romance novel. There are many, many more. Romance is a billion-dollar industry, and the biggest names, the likes of Nora Roberts, Danielle Steele, Joanna Lindsay, and many others, are huge best-selling authors. These are writers of what are called single-title romances, one-off, self-contained novels published just like most novels are. Mills and Boone books, on the other hand, are designated as category romances, where novels are produced in themed series, So the extract you just heard is from the Mills and Boone medical series, where you will only find love stories set in and around hospitals and featuring doctors and nurses and so on. The author is relatively unimportant in these novels compared to the series that the book fits into. We'll come back to this and to the publishing phenomenon that is Mills and Boone's in just a little bit. Before that, though, I wanted to understand a little about the background to romance writing. Hello? Hi, can you hear me there? Yeah, how are you? Not too bad, not too bad. Thank Who you better to much. call than an assistant professor of English currently on study leave in Argentina to write a book about romance heroines? My name is Jeshri Gamble and I'm a romance researcher. It's my primary field of study. Um, I currently work as an associate professor of English at LaGuardia Community College and um, I'm currently working on my second book on romance The first one, um, Making Meaning in Popular Romance Fiction, was um, on romance heroes, and the second one is on romance heroines. Romance is a genre with a century-long history in its mass market form. But of course, there are antecedents and precursors going back much further. Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice frequently tops reader polls as the greatest ever romance novel. There are plenty of other examples. 
and uh, the work of the Bronte sisters. So particularly Jane Eyre, um, and to some extent, I would say Wuthering Heights. And then um, even further back, we uh, trace some structural similarity with Richardson's Pamela. So those are kind of the major sort of now canonized works that are in some ways predecessors to the modern mass market romance. Samuel Richardson's Pamela, or Virtue Rewarded, is one of the first ever novels in English, published in 1740. In the novel, Pamela, a servant, tells her story, in which she repeatedly attempts to avoid the unwanted advances of her lecherous employer, until finally her virtue is rewarded and he makes her an honest marriage proposal. Not exactly a Me Too story, but it was a very early romance in which a female character's perspective is given in full and her feelings and character explored in depth. There are also recent, slightly more recent models that you can find in the work of Georgette Hare. And she's writing um, closer to the beginning of the 20th century, but her work is historical romance. So they're set in a sort of Regency England time period. And so that's kind of the model that currently the folks who write historical or Regency romances often sort of hark back to. And as you may well be aware, historical romance is a huge subcategory within the romance genre. There are other more specific precursors too to different subgenres of romance. So, for example, paranormal and supernatural romance is another huge subgenre, and this then has its roots in the Gothic tradition. Really, though, it was the middle of the 20th century when the romance novel as we know it today began to come together. Like any genre, romance fiction has rules and expectations, things that a novel should always or should never have, and then, of course, all the ensuing disagreements and arguments about what exactly those things are. As you might expect, other than there being some romance, there's very little agreement on what elements a romance novel must have. The one thing that most can agree on, though, is the HEA. I think for it's something to be a mass market popular romance novel, the non-negotiable one is the happy ending. And um, the form that the happy ending takes has changed, but there has to be some kind of assurance that the protagonists of that love story arc are going to be together um, for the foreseeable future. And so in romance uh, terminology, we used to talk about the HEA, the happily ever after, as being the crucial trope, the one you can't do without. Um, now we also talk about the HFN, which is the happy for now. Not every romance has to end with traditional marriage, but the protagonist should at least be happy at the end, happy for now. Other than this, though, there is huge variation in what a romance novel might be. There are subgenres, historical, modern, supernatural, science fiction and fantasy, and so on. And the genre has also massively diversified in more recent decades, far beyond its early roots. I think I said at the beginning that mass market romance sort of started right as an English language form. It had Caucasian, straight, cis protagonists, often between the ages of like 18 and 30, Often the stories were set in the UK um, and, you know, uh, apart from like the quote unquote um, colonies or Commonwealth, they were set in places that seemed like exotic, um, but in Europe, such as the Mediterranean. So that was kind of the early structure. The dog, by the way, was seemingly not happy with our discussion of romance novels. And then over the last 40 years, 
almost all of those axes have changed. Not that the old ones have been abandoned, but just new ones keep getting added. And the demand for that kind of change has been very, very loud in the last few years. Even sort of the basic configuration of uh, a young woman with an older, often, you know, much more worldly and wealthy man um, now has changed to many, many other types. So you can have different types of couples. Uh, there are also, though they're not quite as mainstream, but there are also many romance novels with a menage a trois uh, configuration. Um, there are many more interracial relationships. Um, there are many more subgenres uh, within romance that prioritize other sort of companion plot arcs, whether it's like solving a mystery or fighting human or non-human enemies. Um, and then we've got like Twitter movements in more recent years, like hashtag we need diverse romance, which are calling for publishing entirely to sort of rethink what it's doing to include more authors of color, more editors of color, more agents of color, um, and that they're asking for plots that depict, um, you know, other experiences that would have been centered in the past. However, despite this diversification and variation, despite the existence of a huge spectrum of romance novels, from the predictable and cliche-ridden on one end to the innovative, original and inspiring on the other, romance does not get a good rap. There's frequently a sneering attitude towards romance fiction. Cheap, disposable, rubbish read by women who don't appreciate real literature. It's an attitude that exists towards all genre fiction to a degree, but in recent decades, detective fiction, science fiction, and horror, for example, have all become a lot more respectable. They're the subject of literary criticism, newspaper reviews, university posts. This has not really been the case for romance, at least until very recently. It is far down the scale of literary respectability, and for lots of people fails the would I like to be seen reading this on the bus test. There are a few reasons for this. Firstly, there's just a lack of knowledge about the genre. I think there are assumptions that were made that the genre somehow, because it's about love, only has one story. And that essentially, actually, that there's one romance novel. And what else is there to say about it if there's just one romance novel? And so I think those assumptions um, and prejudices definitely might have worked against it being more key or um, turning more mainstream as popular culture studies uh, blossomed. Secondly, there are reasons which have nothing to do with literature and everything to do with sexism. There's certainly some element of sexism attached to it, of course. Um, sort of old, um, you know, denigration of um, any form that is attached to women and women's lives. And so I think there's a, um, there was anyway a sense that it was far too sentimental. It wasn't, uh, you know, attending to the really cerebral or the really universal uh, human experience. Finally, I think there's a lot of conflation that goes on when people think about romance novels. For a lot of non-readers, when they think romance, they think solely of one type of category romance, the novels they see so prominently in supermarkets and bookshops with their instantly recognisable covers. Essentially, because of the phenomenal success of Mills and Boone and other companies like it, these types of novels have, in many people's minds, become the entire genre. Come to dinner with me anyway. He ordered her, and there was something about the way he said things, as if they were laws instead of requests, that, oddly, made her want to obey him. She had to lock her knees to keep from moving toward him. She, who was famous for her attitude problems and inability to follow the orders of people who were paying her to listen to them. What was that? 
You can consider it a date. Maggie assumed that he was joking, because he had to be joking, of course. No one asked her for dates, even roundabout ones like this one. She had stay the hell away from me stamped all over her face, she was pretty sure. And the few times anyone had actually mustered up all their courage and asked that scrappy Strafford girl on a date, he had not been a king. That's bride by royal decree. Of course, it's easy to write off books like this as cheap and disposable and formulaic. They are cheap. Paperbacks cost about €6, Euro, the ebook versions are 2 99 And they are disposable. Avid readers churn through them and then move on to the next in the series. That's how they're marketed. They're also entirely formulaic. That's the point. Readers want escapism and fun and exotic romance. They're published alongside extensive market research, so they conform precisely to reader expectations. And Mills and Boone have been successfully doing this for a century. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they're really the the sort of alpha of it all. They started the genre. Mass market romance exists because Mills and Boone started publishing um, love stories. You know, they were a general publisher in the first decade of the 20th century. They were doing school textbooks. They were doing um, Jack London, all kinds of things. But they really started publishing love stories almost exclusively um, initially in hardback and then in paperback after World War II. And um, what really expanded um, the, the genre's reach was that a Canadian company named Harlequin started uh, reprinting Mills and Boone novels uh, for the North American market. And the one of the women, I think actually the wife of the owner of Harlequin, realized that the novels that sold the most of the ones that they were reprinting were the love stories. And so Harlequin really sort of created a feedback loop for Mills and Boone that helped them sort of narrow down and decide that they really just exclusively wanted to publish these short love stories. And so that's how we get the Harlequin, Mills and Boone, what's called the category romance, which are about 180 pages long. Um, there's a fairly tight structure to the plot. Um, and there are sort of lines or subcategories within that larger um, Harlequin, Mills and Boone category romance group. Um, and they usually have to do with what is what else is emphasized in the plot, like a thriller element, Um and maybe like a higher degree of um, sexual activity. Um, But overall, the category romance is what often people uh, think of, they see at the checkout counter. Um, It's compact, it's numbered, um, and it's a novel that you will foreground the publisher um, and the line of that subgenre over the author. The uh, stylization of the cover so that it had this uniform appearance so that the name of the company was quite big, that they had a particular logo that was very prominent, then the numbering system. So, for example, there's the D.A.R.E. series. Sensual love stories featuring smart, sassy heroines you'd want as a best friend, and compelling, intense heroes who were worthy of them. The historical series. Indulge your fantasies of delicious Regency rakes, fierce Viking warriors, and rugged Highlanders. Or the True Love series. Celebrate true love with tender stories of heartfelt romance, from the rush of falling in love to the joy a new baby can bring, and a focus on the emotional heart of a relationship. And they had a subscription model. I believe they still might. And so if you were um, a reader, you subscribed to uh, Harlequin Muslim Category Romance by uh, month. 
and they would send you six novels or four novels every month. And so that's how they um, sold them. So not only were they found everywhere else, including I think in the UK, but also certainly in my experience growing up in India in used bookshops. And so they sort of had a secondary life. They kept circulating even after the first sale um, to this um, secondary system of the used bookstore. Uh, and in India, the sort of neighborhood circulating library. And so they've kind of had an extended life because of the way that they've been uh, sort of constructed and marketed to look like they are um, standardized and that you can trust that what you'll get inside is this very specific structure um, of a love story. A Mills and Boone novel is sold worldwide every four seconds. Talking about worldwide international success, I wanted to take a quick break to talk about Patreon. An episode of words to that effect is not, alas, downloaded every four seconds yet. But if you do listen to the show, you appreciate the research and scripting and editing and other work that goes into it, then maybe you'd like to become a patron. If you head to patreon.com slash WTTE, you can join up, get access to bonus episodes and other goodies and help the show grow. I'll also thank you personally on the show so you could join the list of amazing people like Rachel and Daryl and Julianne and Margaret who have all signed up most recently. So that's patreon.com slash WTTE. Back to the romance. So the conflation of different types of romance novels also happens, I think, with so-called bodice rippers. So these are the novels from the 70s and thereabouts with particularly distinct covers. You know, the young virginal woman with heaving bosoms, the brooding man with flowing locks grasping her in his arms. There are some photos on the website if you want to have a look. The sex in these novels was a lot more graphic than in previous decades, and the rape fantasy was a central part of it an aspect which, pretty understandably, gives romance fiction a very bad name, even if these are very much a historical part of the genre by now. Incidentally, the brooding man with the flowing hair on the cover of lots of these novels from this period was the famed Fabio Lanzoni, known simply as Fabio. The Italian model and actor became renowned as a cover model for romance novels throughout the 80s and 90s. His subsequent career has involved multiple cameos in film and TV. He was in Zoolander, for example, if you remember. More recently, he played the Pope in Sharknado 5 Global Swarming. Or, at least according to Wikipedia, did I have unfortunately not seen the no doubt wonderful Sharknado 5. So Fabio is associated with these uh, romance novels as well, but he appeared. He did not appear on any Mills and Boom Harlequin, as far as I know. Um, he's, um, he made most of his career um, modeling and being on the covers of American um, romance novels and specifically uh, these what's called a single title, which is different from the category romance. So single titled romances uh, written by authors like Johanna Lindsay, who passed away um, recently, um, a few months ago. And so it's actually her romance novels that made Fabio the household name that he is now. Joanna Lindsay is a major name in romance fiction. She was one of a number of hugely successful and prolific international best-selling romance authors. For many people, though, the name that is most associated with romance is Nora Roberts. Nora Roberts certainly um, is and has been uh, key seminal to the genre really in some ways um, I think identified with the genre with good reason for I would say at this point uh, 45 years something like that Um, and she really shaped the genre in many ways she's a huge bestseller 
she writes um, both as Norman Roberts and she has a science fiction co- police procedural sort of futuristic romance series that she writes as J.D. Robb, um, which is extremely prolific. I think puts out four new novels every year. Two is Norman Roberts, two is J.D. Robb. And uh, <laughs> essentially, as she herself often talks about it, is a workaholic. Roberts is a publishing phenomenon. She's written well over 200 novels, and almost all of them have appeared on the New York Times bestseller list. Her novels have spent over a thousand weeks at the number one spot. Tellingly, despite this decades-long dominance of the charts, the New York Times itself has reviewed just a single one of her novels ever. For lots of romance readers, she is romance fiction. She has won every major romance writer's award and sold over 400 million copies of her novels. 400 million copies. She's often very much ahead of the curve in terms of shaping what's going to happen to the romance. So um, she's done like the small town American romance. She's done the big city American romance. She's done the Irish fantasy, speaking of um, romances and sort of has a bit of a mythology around her um, her roots uh, as an Irish American. Um, she's done the sort of vampire Buffy style um, romance. Um, she's done the paranormal romance. Uh, she's, I think, now uh, moving towards writing apocalyptic um, romance series. Well, not romance. I think it's an apocalyptic series with a romance plot, is how she's put it. So whether Roberts or Lindsay, Bodice Ripper or Mills and Boone, what does romance offer? Why read romance novels at all? I think, again, I can't speak for all romance readers, but by and large, I am interested in the story of how intimate romantic lives can be better. Um, because I don't think we have very good models for it um, outside of the genre. And so both the sexual and the emotional life uh, of an intimate romantic pairing and how one can imagine it improving is sort of the core um, draw, I think, of the genre. And I think that might be true for other readers as well. Um, and more centrally, and this is the idea I'm working through in my current book, is I'm interested in how the heroine of such a plot, of a romance plot, can attain what are otherwise everywhere else in our society, I think, seen as very contradictory goals, which is how to have a strong intimate partnership with an equitable division of labor, both physical, emotional, and financial, and a successful professional trajectory with or without uh, an intimate partner. So I think that romance is constantly trying to figure out how to bridge those two things, which otherwise we keep getting messages is not possible. So it's sort of aspirational, the genre, about women's happiness and the potential roots to maintaining it. I figured I better get some recommendations, too. I'm not sure about the dog's feelings on all of this. So Sherry Thomas's My Beautiful Enemy is my personal recommendation um, for anyone who's interested in historical romance. So the two main distinctions in the genre are contemporary romance and historical romance. And so... Um, this particular novel is a historical romance and it's, uh, it has a biracial heroine and it's set both in um, Qing era China, so late 19th century China and uh, late 19th century or Victorian England. And so I like the scope of it and I think some of the best romance novels are actually able to sort of give you a sense of how 
characters fit into the larger political and economic and social landscape of their time. And um, I think she's done a great job of that. The other major one I want to do, do want to mention is Beverly Jenkins, who's an African-American romance author and has been written, writing African-American romance for a long time, despite the industry uh, and the gatekeepers often saying that there was no market for it. No one wanted to really read it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But she's been doing it um, and very well for, again, for like 30 something years. Maybe you're already an avid romance reader. Maybe you've written off the entire genre on the basis of some book covers or a misunderstanding of what romance fiction really is or can be. Or maybe you're wavering and this episode has pushed you over the edge, convinced you to go discover some new fiction. There's a whole world of handsome strangers waiting for you. She'd already accidentally made eye contact with hot stuff in the swanky suit today and many more times since he'd started taking her train. It was hard not to. With his overlong hair and rugged stubble, the man was a study in the kind of dark, broody countenance you just couldn't fake. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. For links to all of the books mentioned, further reading, amazing romance book covers, and lots more, head to the WTTE website, which is wttepodcast.com. You can also find links to the Patreon page there if you'd like to support the show and get access to bonus episodes and other nice things. If you can't do that, maybe instead you could simply tell someone about the show. Send them a link to the show, recommend it in person. I would really appreciate it. A huge thanks this week to Professor Comble. I've put links to her work on the website and her as-of-yet untitled work on romance heroines should be out later this year. The International Association for the Study of Popular Romance is another place you can head to for more info. That's at iasbr.org, and I'll put a link to that on the site too. Thanks also to the amazing Amy O'Dwyer, who voiced all those lovely Mills and Boone extracts you heard. Music this week was from Blue Dot Sessions. And finally, you can follow the show at Words to That Effect on Instagram and Facebook. And I'm on Twitter at CEDREAD, CED or EID. And that's it. I'll see you in two weeks. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.